7. Receiving Empathically. The last four chapters describe the four components of NVC, what we are observing, feeling, and needing, and what we would like to request to enrich our lives. Now we turn from self-expression to apply these same four components to hearing what others are observing, feeling, needing, and requesting. We refer to this part of the communication process as receiving empathically. The two parts of NVC. 1. Expressing honestly. 2. Receiving empathically. Presence, don't just do something, stand there. Empathy is a respectful understanding of what others are experiencing. The Chinese philosopher Chuang Tzu stated that true empathy requires listening with the whole being, the hearing that is only in the ears is one thing. The hearing of the understanding is another. But the hearing of the spirit is not limited to any one faculty, to the ear, or to the mind. Hence it demands the emptiness of all the faculties. And when the faculties are empty, then the whole being listens. There is then a direct grasp of what is right there before you that can never be heard with the ear or understood with the mind. Empathy, emptying our mind and listening with our whole being. Empathy with others occurs only when we have successfully shed all preconceived ideas and judgments about them. The Austrian-born Israeli philosopher Martin Buber describes this quality of presence that life demands of us, in spite of all similarities, every living situation has, like a newborn child, a new face, that has never been before and will never come again. It demands of you a reaction that cannot be prepared beforehand. It demands nothing of what is past. It demands presence, responsibility, it demands you. The presence that empathy requires is not easy to maintain. The capacity to give one's attention to a sufferer is a very rare and difficult thing, it is almost a miracle, it is a miracle, asserts French philosopher Simone Weil. Nearly all those who think they have the capacity do not possess it. Instead of offering empathy, we tend instead to give advice or reassurance and to explain our own position or feeling. Empathy, on the other hand, requires us to focus full attention on the other person's message. We give to others the time and space they need to express themselves fully and to feel understood. There is a Buddhist saying that aptly describes this ability, don't just do something, stand there. Ask before offering advice or reassurance. It is often frustrating for someone needing empathy to have us assume that they want reassurance or fix-it advice. I received a lesson from my daughter that taught me to check whether advice or reassurance is wanted before offering any. She was looking in the mirror one day and said, I'm as ugly as a pig. You're the most gorgeous creature God ever put on the face of the earth, I declared. She shot me a look of exasperation, exclaimed, Oh, daddy. And slammed the door as she left the room. I later found out that she had wanted some empathy. Instead of my ill-timed reassurance, I could have asked, are you feeling disappointed with your appearance today? My friend Holly Humphrey identified some common behaviors that prevent us from being sufficiently present to connect empathically with others. The following are examples. Advising, I think you should, how come you didn't? One-upping, that's nothing, wait till you hear what happened to me. Educating, this could turn into a very positive experience for you if you just. Consoling, it wasn't your fault, you did the best you could. Storytelling, that reminds me of the time. Shutting down, cheer up. Don't feel so bad. Sympathizing, oh, you poor thing. Interrogating, when did this begin? Explaining, I would have called but. Correcting, 
that's not how it happened. In his book When Bad Things Happen to Good People, Rabbi Harold Kushner describes how painful it was for him, when his son was dying, to hear the words people offered that were intended to make him feel better. Even more painful was his recognition that for 20 years he had been saying the same things to other people in similar situations. Believing we have to fix situations and make others feel better prevents us from being present. Those of us in the role of counselor or psychotherapist are particularly susceptible to this belief. Once, when I was working with 23 mental health professionals, I asked them to write, word for word, how they would respond to a client who says, I'm feeling very depressed. I just don't see any reason to go on. I collected the answers they had written down and announced, I am now going to read out loud what each of you wrote. Imagine yourself in the role of the person who expressed the feeling of depression, and raise your hand after each statement you hear that gives you a sense that you've been understood. Hands were raised to only three of the 23 responses. Questions such as, when did this begin? Constituted the most frequent response, they give the appearance that the professional is obtaining the information necessary to diagnose and then treat the problem. In fact, such intellectual understanding of a problem blocks the kind of presence that empathy requires. When we are thinking about people's words and listening to how they connect to our theories, we are looking at people, we are not with them. The key ingredient of empathy is presence, we are wholly present with the other party and what they are experiencing. This quality of presence distinguishes empathy from either mental understanding or sympathy. While we may choose at times to sympathize with others by feeling their feelings, it's helpful to be aware that during the moment we are offering sympathy, we are not empathizing. Intellectual understanding blocks empathy. Listening for feelings and needs. In NBC, no matter what words people use to express themselves, we listen for their observations, feelings, needs, and requests. Imagine you've loaned your car to a new neighbor who had a personal emergency, and when your family finds out, they react with intensity, you are a fool for having trusted a total stranger. You can use the components of NBC to tune into the feelings and needs of those family members in contrast to either, 1, blaming yourself by taking the message personally, or, 2, blaming and judging them. No matter what others say, we only hear what they are, 1, observing, 2, feeling, 3, needing, and, 4, requesting. In this situation, it's obvious what the family is observing and reacting to, the lending of the car to a relative stranger. In other situations, it may not be so clear. If a colleague tells us, you're not a good team player, we may not know what he or she is observing, although we can usually guess at the behavior that might have triggered such a statement. The following exchange, from a workshop, demonstrates the difficulty of focusing on other people's feelings and needs when we are accustomed to assuming responsibility for their feelings and taking messages personally. The woman in this dialogue wanted to learn to hear the feelings and needs behind certain of her husband's statements. I suggested that she guess at his feelings and needs and then check it out with him. Husband's statement, what good does talking to you do? You never listen. Woman, are you feeling unhappy with me? MBR, when you say with me, you imply that his feelings are the result of what you did. I would prefer for you to say, are you unhappy because you were needing? And not are you unhappy with me? It would put your attention on what's going on within him and decrease the likelihood of your taking the message personally. Woman, but what would I say? Are you unhappy because you? Because you what? MBR, get your clue from the content of your husband's message, what good does talking to you do? You never listen.
What is he needing that he's not getting when he says that? Woman, trying to empathize with the needs expressed through her husband's message, are you feeling unhappy because you feel like I don't understand you? MBR, notice that you are focusing on what he's thinking, and not on what he's needing. I think you'll find people to be less threatening if you hear what they're needing rather than what they're thinking about you. Instead of hearing that he's unhappy because he thinks you don't listen, focus on what he's needing by saying, are you unhappy because you are needing? Woman, trying again, are you feeling unhappy because you are needing to be heard? MBR, that's what I had in mind. Does it make a difference for you to hear him this way? Woman, definitely, a big difference. I see what's going on for him without hearing that I had done anything wrong. Listen to what people are needing rather than what they are thinking. Paraphrasing. After we focus our attention and hear what others are observing, feeling, and needing and what they are requesting to enrich their lives, we may wish to reflect back by paraphrasing what we have understood. In our previous discussion on requests, chapter 6, we discussed how to ask for a reflection, now we will look at how to offer it to others. If we have accurately received the other party's message, our paraphrasing will confirm this for them. If, on the other hand, our paraphrase is incorrect, we give the speaker an opportunity to correct us. Another advantage of choosing to reflect a message back to the other party is that it offers them time to reflect on what they've said and an opportunity to delve deeper into themselves. NBC suggests that our paraphrasing take the form of questions that reveal our understanding while eliciting any necessary corrections from the speaker. Questions may focus on these components. What others are observing, are you reacting to how many evenings I was gone last week? How others are feeling and the needs generating their feelings, are you feeling hurt because you would have liked more appreciation of your efforts than you received? What others are requesting, are you wanting me to tell you my reasons for saying what I did? These questions require us to sense what's going on within other people, while inviting their correction should we have sensed incorrectly. Notice the difference between these questions and the ones below. What did I do that you are referring to? How are you feeling? Why are you feeling that way? What are you wanting me to do about it? This second set of questions asks for information without first sensing the speaker's reality. Though they may appear to be the most direct way to connect with what's going on within the other person, I found that questions like these are not the safest route to obtain the information we seek. Many such questions may give speakers the impression that we're a school teacher examining them or a psychotherapist working on a case. If we do decide to ask for information in this way, however, I found that people feel safer if we first reveal the feelings and needs within ourselves that are generating the question. Thus, instead of asking someone, what did I do? We might say, I'm frustrated because I'd like to be clearer about what you are referring to. Would you be willing to tell me what I've done that leads you to see me in this way? While this step may not be necessary, or even helpful, in situations where our feelings and needs are clearly conveyed by the context or tone of voice, I would recommend it particularly during moments when the questions we ask are accompanied by strong emotions. When asking for information, first express our own feelings and needs. How do we determine if an occasion calls for us to reflect people's messages back to them? Certainly if we are unsure that we have accurately understood the message, we might use paraphrasing to elicit a correction to our guess. But even if we are confident that we've understood them, we may sense the other party wanting confirmation that their message has been accurately received. They may even express this desire overtly by asking, is that clear? Or do you understand what I mean? At such moments, 
hearing a clear paraphrase will often be more reassuring to the speaker than hearing simply, yes, I understand. For example, shortly after participating in an NBC training, a volunteer at a hospital was requested by some nurses to talk to an elderly patient, we've told this woman she isn't that sick and that she'd get better if she took her medicine, but all she does is sit in her room all day long repeating, I want to die. I want to die. The volunteer approached the elderly woman, and as the nurses had predicted, found her sitting alone, whispering over and over, I want to die. So you would like to die, the volunteer empathized. Surprised, the woman broke off her chant and appeared relieved. She began to talk about how no one understood how terrible she was feeling. The volunteer continued to reflect back the woman's feelings, before long, such warmth had entered their dialogue that they were sitting with their arms locked around each other. Later that day, the nurses questioned the volunteer about her magic formula, the elderly woman had started to eat and take her medicine, and was apparently in better spirits. Although the nurses had tried to help her with advice and reassurance, it wasn't until her interaction with the volunteer that this woman received what she was truly needing, connection with another human being who could hear her profound despair. There are no infallible guidelines regarding when to paraphrase, but as a rule of thumb, it is safe to assume that speakers expressing intensely emotional messages would appreciate our reflecting these back to them. When we ourselves are talking, we can make it easier for the listener if we clearly signify when we want or don't want our words to be reflected back to us. Reflect back messages that are emotionally charged. There are occasions when we may choose not to verbally reflect someone's statements out of respect for certain cultural norms. For example, a Chinese man once attended a workshop to learn how to hear the feelings and needs behind his father's remarks. Because he could not bear the criticism and attack he continually heard in his father's words, this man dreaded visiting his father and avoided him for months at a time. He came to me ten years later and reported that his ability to hear feelings and needs had radically transformed his relationship with his father to the point where they now enjoy a close and loving connection. Although he listens for his father's feelings and needs, however, he does not paraphrase what he hears. I never say it out loud, he explained. In our culture, to direct talk to a person about their feelings is something they're not used to. But thanks to the fact that I no longer hear what he says as an attack, but as his own feelings and needs, our relationship has become enormously wonderful. Paraphrase only when it contributes to greater compassion and understanding. So you're never going to talk directly to him about feelings, but it helps to be able to hear them. I asked. No, now I think I'm probably ready, he answered. Now that we have such a solid relationship, if I were to say to him, Dad, I'd like to be able to talk directly to you about what we are feeling, I think he just might be ready to do it. When we paraphrase, the tone of voice we use is highly important. When hearing themselves reflected back, people are likely to be sensitive to the slightest hint of criticism or sarcasm. They are likewise negatively affected by a declarative tone that implies that we are telling them what is going on inside of them. If we are consciously listening for other people's feelings and needs, however, our tone communicates that we're asking whether we have understood, not claiming that we have understood. We also need to be prepared for the possibility that the intention behind our paraphrasing will be misinterpreted. Don't pull any of that psychology crap on me. We may be told. Should this occur, we continue our effort to sense the speaker's feelings and needs, perhaps we see in this case that the speaker doesn't trust our motives and needs more understanding of our intentions before he can appreciate hearing our paraphrases. As we've seen, all criticism, attack, insults, 
and judgments vanish when we focus attention on hearing the feelings and needs behind a message. The more we practice in this way, the more we realize a simple truth, behind all those messages we've allowed ourselves to be intimidated by are just individuals with unmet needs appealing to us to contribute to their well-being. When we receive messages with this awareness, we never feel dehumanized by what others have to say to us. We only feel dehumanized when we get trapped in derogatory images of other people or thoughts of wrongness about ourselves. As author and mythologist Joseph Campbell suggested, what will they think of me? Must be put aside for bliss. We begin to feel this bliss when messages previously experienced as critical or blaming begin to be seen for the gifts they are, opportunities to give to people who are in pain. Behind intimidating messages are merely people appealing to us to meet their needs. A difficult message becomes an opportunity to enrich someone's life. If it happens regularly that people distrust our motives and sincerity when we paraphrase their words, we may need to examine our own intentions more closely. Perhaps we are paraphrasing and engaging the components of NBC in a mechanistic way without maintaining clear consciousness of purpose. We might ask ourselves, for example, whether we are more intent on applying the process correctly than on connecting with the human being in front of us. Or perhaps, even though we are using the form of NBC, our only interest is in changing the other person's behavior. Some people resist paraphrasing as a waste of time. One city administrator explained during a practice session, I'm paid to give facts and solutions, not to sit around doing psychotherapy with everyone who comes into my office. This same administrator, however, was being confronted by angry citizens who would come to him with their passionate concerns and leave dissatisfied for not having been heard. Some of these citizens later confided to me, when you go to his office, he gives you a bunch of facts, but you never know whether he's heard you first. When that happens, you start to distrust his facts. Paraphrasing tends to save, rather than waste, time. Studies in labor management negotiations demonstrate that the time required to reach conflict resolution is cut in half when each negotiator agrees, before responding, to accurately repeat what the previous speaker had said. Paraphrasing saves time. I recall a man who was initially skeptical about the value of paraphrasing. He and his wife were attending an NBC workshop during a time when their marriage was beset by serious problems. During the workshop, his wife said to him, You never listen to me. I do too, he replied. No, you don't, she countered. I addressed the husband, I'm afraid you just proved her point. You didn't respond in a way that lets her know that you were listening to her. He was puzzled by the point I was making, so I asked for permission to play his role, which he gladly gave since he wasn't having too much success with it. His wife and I then had the following exchange. Wife, you never listen to me. MBR in role of husband, it sounds like you're terribly frustrated because you would like to feel more connection when we speak. The wife was moved to tears when she finally received this confirmation that she had been understood. I turned to the husband and explained, I believe this is what she is telling you she needs, a reflection of her feelings and needs as a confirmation that she'd been heard. The husband seemed dumbfounded. Is that all she wanted? He asked, incredulous that such a simple act could have had such a strong impact on his wife. A short time later, he enjoyed the satisfaction firsthand when his wife reflected back to him a statement that he had made with great emotional intensity. Savoring her paraphrase, he looked at me and declared, it's valid. It is a poignant experience to receive concrete evidence that someone is empathically connected to us. Sustaining Empathy 
I recommend allowing others the opportunity to fully express themselves before turning our attention to solutions or requests for relief. When we proceed too quickly to what people might be requesting, we may not convey our genuine interest in their feelings and needs. Instead, they may get the impression that we're in a hurry to either be free of them or to fix their problem. Furthermore, an initial message is often like the tip of an iceberg, it may be followed by as yet unexpressed, but related, and often more powerful, feelings. By maintaining our attention on what's going on within others, we offer them a chance to fully explore and express their interior selves. We would stem this flow if we were to shift attention too quickly either to their request or to our own desire to express ourselves. Suppose a mother comes to us, saying, my child is impossible. No matter what I tell him to do, he doesn't listen. We might reflect her feelings and needs by saying, it sounds like you're feeling desperate and would like to find some way of connecting with your son. Such a paraphrase often encourages a person to look within. If we have accurately reflected her statement, the mother might touch upon other feelings, maybe it's my fault. I'm always yelling at him. As the listener, we would continue to stay with the feelings and needs being expressed and say, for example, are you feeling guilty because you would have liked to have been more understanding of him than you have been at times? If the mother continues to sense understanding in our reflection, she might move further into her feelings and declare, I'm just a failure as a mother. We continue to remain with the feelings and needs being expressed, so you're feeling discouraged and want to relate differently to him. We persist in this manner until the person has exhausted all her feelings surrounding this issue. When we stay with empathy, we allow speakers to touch deeper levels of themselves. What evidence is there that we've adequately empathized with the other person? First, when an individual realizes that everything going on within has received full empathic understanding, they will experience a sense of relief. We can become aware of this phenomenon by noticing a corresponding release of tension in our own body. A second, even more obvious sign is that the person will stop talking. If we are uncertain as to whether we have stayed long enough in the process, we can always ask, is there more that you wanted to say? We know a speaker has received adequate empathy when, 1, we sense a release of tension, or, 2, the flow of words comes to a halt. When pain blocks our ability to empathize. It is impossible for us to give something to another if we don't have it ourselves. Likewise, if we find ourselves unable or unwilling to empathize despite our efforts, it is usually a sign that we are too starved for empathy to be able to offer it to others. Sometimes, if we openly acknowledge that our own distress is preventing us from responding empathically, the other person may come through with the empathy we need. We need empathy to give empathy. At other times, it may be necessary to provide ourselves with some emergency first aid empathy by listening to what's going on in ourselves with the same quality of presence and attention that we offer to others. Former United Nations Secretary General Dag Hammarholt once said, the more faithfully you listen to the voice within you, the better you will hear what is happening outside. If we become skilled at giving ourselves empathy, we often experience in just a few seconds a natural release of energy that then enables us to be present with the other person. If this fails to happen, however, we have a couple of other choices. We can scream, non-violently. I recall spending three days mediating between two gangs that had been killing each other off. One gang called themselves Black Egyptians, the other, the East St. Louis Police Department. The score was two to one, a total of three dead within a month. After three tense days trying to bring these groups together to hear each other and resolve their differences, 
I was driving home and thinking how I never wanted to be in the middle of a conflict again for the rest of my life. The first thing I saw when I walked through the back door was my children entangled in a fight. I had no energy to empathize with them so I screamed non-violently, Hey, I'm in a lot of pain. Right now I really do not want to deal with your fighting. I just want some peace and quiet. My older son, then nine, stopped short, looked at me, and asked, Do you want to talk about it? If we are able to speak our pain nakedly without blame, I find that even people in distress are sometimes able to hear our need. Of course I wouldn't want to scream, what's the matter with you? Don't you know how to behave any better? I just got home after a rough day. Or insinuate in any way that their behavior was at fault. I scream nonviolently by calling attention to my own desperate needs and pain in the moment. If, however, the other party is also experiencing such intensity of feelings that they can neither hear us nor leave us alone, and neither emergency empathy nor nonviolent screaming has served us well, our third recourse is to physically remove ourselves from the situation. We give ourselves time out and the opportunity to acquire the empathy we need to return in a different frame of mind. Summary Empathy is a respectful understanding of what others are experiencing. We often have a strong urge to give advice or reassurance and to explain our own position or feeling. Empathy, however, calls upon us to empty our mind and listen to others with our whole being. In NBC, no matter what words others may use to express themselves, we simply listen for their observations, feelings, needs, and requests. Then we may wish to reflect back, paraphrasing what we have understood. We stay with empathy and allow others the opportunity to fully express themselves before we turn our attention to solutions or requests for relief. We need empathy to give empathy. When we sense ourselves being defensive or unable to empathize, we need to, one, stop, breathe, give ourselves empathy, two, scream non-violently, or, three, take time out. NBC in action. A wife connects with her dying husband. A patient had just been diagnosed with an advanced stage of lung cancer. The following scene at his home, involving the patient, his wife, and a visiting nurse, represents a last opportunity for him to connect emotionally with his wife and discuss his dying before being admitted to the hospital. The wife began the conversation with the nurse by complaining about the physical therapist who was part of the home health care team assigned to her husband's care. Wife, she's a bad therapist. Nurse, Listening empathically to what the wife is feeling and wanting, are you feeling annoyed and wanting to see a different quality of care? Wife, she doesn't do anything. She made him stop walking when his pulse got high. Nurse, continuing to hear the wife's feelings and wants, is it because you want your husband to get better that you're scared if the physical therapist doesn't push him, he won't get stronger? Wife, starting to cry, yes, I'm so scared. Nurse, are you scared of losing him? Wife, yes, we've been together so long. Nurse, listening for other feelings behind the fear, are you worrying about how you would feel if he dies? Wife, I just can't imagine how I am going to live without him. He's always been there for me. Always. Nurse, so you're sad when you think of living without him? Wife, there is no one else besides him. He's all I have, you know. My daughter won't even talk to me. Nurse, it sounds like when you think of your daughter, you feel frustrated because you wish you had a different relationship with her. Wife, I wish I did, but she is such a selfish person. 
I don't know why I even bothered having kids. A lot of good it does me now. Nurse, sounds to me like you might be somewhat angry and disappointed because you want more support from the family during your husband's illness. Wife, yes, he's so sick, I don't know how I am going to get through this alone. I haven't anyone, not even to talk to, except with you here, now. Even he won't talk about it. Look at him. Husband remains silent and impassive, he doesn't say anything. Nurse, are you sad, wishing the two of you could support each other and feel more connected? Wife, yes. She pauses, then makes a request, talk to him the way you talk to me. Nurse, wishing to clearly understand the need that is being addressed behind the wife's request, are you wanting him to be listened to in a way that helps him express what he's feeling inside? Wife, yes, yes, that's exactly it. I want him to feel comfortable talking and I want to know what he is feeling. Using the nurse's guess, the wife was able to first become aware of what she wanted and then find the words to articulate it. This was a key moment, often it is difficult for people to identify what they want in a situation, even though they may know what they don't want. We see how a clear request, talk to him the way you talk to me is a gift that empowers the other person. The nurse was then able to act in a way she knew to be in harmony with the wife's wishes. This altered the atmosphere in the room, as the nurse and the wife could now work together, both in a compassionate mode. Nurse, turning to the husband, how do you feel when you hear what your wife has shared? Husband, I really love her. Nurse, are you glad to have an opportunity to talk about this with her? Husband, yes, we need to talk about it. Nurse, would you be willing to say how you are feeling about the cancer? Husband, after a brief silence, not very good. The words good and bad are often used to describe feelings when people have yet to identify the specific emotion they are experiencing. Expressing his feelings more precisely would help this patient with the emotional connection he was seeking with his wife. Nurse, encouraging him to move toward more precision, are you scared about dying? Husband, no, not scared. Notice the nurse's incorrect guess does not hamper the continued flow of dialogue. Nurse, because this patient isn't able to verbalize his internal experience easily, the nurse continues to support him in the process, do you feel angry about dying? Husband, no, not angry. Nurse, at this point, after two incorrect guesses, the nurse decides to express her own feelings, well, now I'm puzzled about what you may be feeling, and wonder if you can tell me. Husband, I reckon, I'm thinking how she'll do without me. Nurse, oh, are you worried she may not be able to handle her life without you? Husband, yes, worried she'll miss me. Nurse, she is aware that dying patients often hang on due to worry over those they are leaving behind, and sometimes need reassurance that loved ones can accept their death before they can let themselves go, do you want to hear how your wife feels when you say that? Husband, yes. Here the wife joined the conversation, in the continued presence of the nurse, the couple began to express themselves openly to each other. In this dialogue, the wife began with a complaint about the physical therapist. However, after a series of exchanges during which she felt empathically received, she was able to determine that what she really sought was a deeper connection with her husband during this critical stage of their lives. Exercise 5. Receiving Empathically versus Non-Empathically. To see whether we are in agreement about the verbal expression of empathy, please circle the number in front of each statement in which person B is responding empathically to what is going on within person A.
1. Person A, how could I do something so stupid? Person B, nobody is perfect, you're too hard on yourself. 2. Person A, if you ask me, we ought to ship all these immigrants back to where they came from. Person B, do you really think that would solve anything? 3. Person A, you aren't God. Person B, are you feeling frustrated because you would like me to admit that there can be other ways of interpreting this matter? 4. Person A, I think that you take me for granted. I wonder how you would manage without me. Person B, that's not true. I don't take you for granted. 5. Person A, how could you say a thing like that to me? Person B, are you feeling hurt because I said that? 6. Person A, I'm furious with my husband. He's never around when I need him. Person B, you think he should be around more than he is? 7. Person A, I'm disgusted with how heavy I'm getting. Person B, perhaps jogging would help. 8. Person A, I've been a nervous wreck planning for my daughter's wedding. Her fiancé's family is not helping. About every day they change their minds about the kind of wedding they would like. Person B, so you're feeling nervous about how to make arrangements and would appreciate it if your future in-laws could be more aware of the complications their indecision creates for you? 9. Person A, when my relatives come without letting me know ahead of time, I feel invaded. It reminds me of how my parents used to disregard my needs and would plan things for me. Person B, I know how you feel. I used to feel that way too. 10. Person A, I'm disappointed with your performance. I would have liked your department to double your production last month. Person B, I understand that you are disappointed, but we have had many absences due to illness. Here are my responses for exercise 5. I didn't circle this one because I see person B giving reassurance to person A rather than empathically receiving what person A is expressing. I see person B attempting to educate person A rather than empathically receiving what person A is expressing. If you circle this we are in agreement. I see person B empathically receiving what person A is expressing. I didn't circle this one because I see person B disagreeing and defending rather than empathically receiving what is going on in person A. I see person B taking responsibility for person A's feelings rather than empathically receiving what is going on in person A. An example of an empathic response might be, are you feeling hurt because you would have liked me to agree to do what you requested? If you circle this we are in partial agreement. I see person B receiving person A's thoughts. However, I believe we connect more deeply when we receive the feelings and needs being expressed rather than the thoughts. Therefore, I would have preferred it if person B had said, so you're feeling furious because you would like him to be around more than he is? I didn't circle this one because I see person B giving advice rather than empathically receiving what is going on in person A. If you circle this we are in agreement. I see person B empathically receiving what is going on in person A. I didn't circle this one because I see person B assuming they understand and talking about their own feelings rather than empathically receiving what is going on in person A. I didn't circle this one because I see person B starting by focusing on person A's feelings but then shifting to explaining. 8. The Power of Empathy Empathy that Heals Carl Rogers described the impact of empathy on its recipients, when, someone really hears you without passing judgment on you, without trying to take responsibility for you, without trying to mold you, it feels damn good, 
when I have been listened to and when I have been heard, I am able to reperceive my world in a new way and to go on. It is astonishing how elements that seem insoluble become soluble when someone listens, how confusions that seem irremediable turn into relatively clear flowing streams when one is heard. Empathy allows us to reperceive our world in a new way and to go on. One of my favorite stories about empathy comes from the principal of an innovative school. She had returned after lunch one day to find Millie, an elementary school student, sitting dejectedly in her office waiting to see her. She sat down next to Millie, who began, Mrs. Anderson, have you ever had a week when everything you did hurt somebody else, and you never intended to hurt anyone at all? Yes, the principal replied, I think I understand, whereupon Millie proceeded to describe her week. By now, the principal related, I was quite late for a very important meeting, still had my coat on, and anxious not to keep a room full of people waiting, and so I asked, Millie, what can I do for you? Millie reached over, took both my shoulders in her hands, looked me straight in the eyes, and said very firmly, Mrs. Anderson, I don't want you to do anything, I just want you to listen. Don't just do something. This was one of the most significant moments of learning in my life, taught to me by a child, so I thought, never mind the roomful of adults waiting for me. Millie and I moved over to a bench that afforded us more privacy and sat, my arm around her shoulders, her head on my chest, and her arm around my waist, while she talked until she was done. And you know, it didn't take that long. One of the most satisfying aspects of my work is to hear how individuals have used NVC to strengthen their ability to connect empathically with others. My friend Lawrence, who lives in Switzerland, described how upset she felt when her six-year-old son had stormed away angrily while she was still talking to him. Isabel, her ten-year-old daughter, who had accompanied her to a recent NVC workshop, remarked, so you're really angry, mom. You'd like for him to talk when he's angry and not run off. Lawrence marveled at how, upon hearing Isabel's words, she felt an immediate diminishing of tension, and was subsequently able to be more understanding with her son when he returned. A college instructor described how relationships between students and faculty had been affected when several members of the faculty learned to listen empathically and to express themselves more vulnerably and honestly. The students opened up more and more and told us about the various personal problems that were interfering with their studies. The more they talked about it, the more work they were able to complete. Even though this kind of listening took a lot of our time, we were glad to spend it in this way. Unfortunately, the dean got upset, he said we were not counselors and should spend more time teaching and less time talking with the students. When I asked how the faculty had dealt with this, the instructor replied, we empathized with the dean's concern. We heard that he felt worried and wanted to know that we weren't getting involved in things we couldn't handle. We also heard that he needed reassurance that the time spent on talking wasn't cutting into our teaching responsibilities. He seemed relieved by the way we listened to him. We continued to talk with the students because we could see that the more we listened to them, the better they did in their studies. When we work in a hierarchically structured institution, there is a tendency to hear commands and judgments from those higher up in the hierarchy. While we may easily empathize with our peers and with those in less powerful positions, we may find ourselves being defensive or apologetic, instead of empathic, in the presence of those we identify as our superiors. This is why I was particularly pleased that these faculty members had remembered to empathize with their dean as well as with their students. It's harder to empathize with those who appear to possess more power, status, or resources. Empathy and the ability to be vulnerable. 
Because we are called to reveal our deepest feelings and needs, we may sometimes find it challenging to express ourselves in NVC. Self-expression becomes easier, however, after we empathize with others, because we will then have touched their humanness and realize the common qualities we share. The more we connect with the feelings and needs behind their words, the less frightening it is to open up to other people. The situations where we are the most reluctant to express vulnerability are often those where we want to maintain a tough image for fear of losing authority or control. The more we empathize with the other party, the safer we feel. Once I showed my vulnerability to some members of a street gang in Cleveland by acknowledging the hurt I was feeling and my desire to be treated with more respect. Oh, look, one of them remarked, he's feeling hurt, isn't that too bad? At which point all his friends chimed in laughing. Here again, I could interpret them as taking advantage of my vulnerability, option two, blame others, or I could empathize with the feelings and needs behind their behavior, option four, sense others' feelings and needs. If, however, I have an image that I'm being humiliated and taken advantage of, I may feel too wounded, angry, or scared to be able to empathize. At such a moment, I would need to withdraw physically in order to offer myself some empathy or to request it from a reliable source. After discovering the needs that had been so powerfully triggered in me and receiving adequate empathy for them, I would then be ready to return and empathize with the other party. In situations of pain, I recommend first getting the empathy necessary to go beyond the thoughts occupying our heads and recognize our deeper needs. As I listened closely to the gang members' remark, Oh look, he's feeling hurt, isn't that too bad? And the laughter that followed, I sensed that he and his friends were annoyed and not wanting to be subjected to guilt trips and manipulation. They may have been reacting to people in their pasts who used phrases like that hurts me to imply disapproval. Since I didn't verify it with them out loud, I have no way of knowing if my guess was in fact accurate. Just focusing my attention there, however, kept me from either taking it personally or getting angry. Instead of judging them for ridiculing me or treating me disrespectfully, I concentrated on hearing the pain and the needs behind such behavior. Hey, one of them burst out, this is a bunch of crap you're offering us. Suppose there are members of another gang here and they have guns and you don't. And you say just stand there and talk to them? Crap. Then everybody was laughing again, and again I directed my attention to their feelings and needs, so it sounds like you're really fed up with learning something that has no relevance in those situations? Yeah, and if you lived in this neighborhood, you'd know this is a bunch of crap. So you need to trust that someone teaching you something has some knowledge of your neighborhood? Damn right. Some of these dudes would blast you away before you got two words out of your mouth. And you need to trust that someone trying to teach you something understands the dangers around here? I continued to listen in this manner, sometimes verbalizing what I heard and sometimes not. This continued for 45 minutes, and then I sensed a shift, they felt that I was truly understanding them. A counselor in the program noticed the shift, and asked them out loud, what do you think of this man? The gentleman who had been giving me the roughest time replied, he's the best speaker we've ever had. Astonished, the counselor turned to me and whispered, but you haven't said anything. In fact, I had said a lot by demonstrating that there was nothing they could throw at me that couldn't be translated into universal human feelings and needs. We say a lot by listening for other people's feelings and needs. Using Empathy to Diffuse Danger The ability to offer empathy to people in stressful situations can diffuse potential violence. 
A teacher in the inner city of St. Louis related an incident where she had conscientiously stayed after school to help a student, even though teachers were warned, for their own safety, to leave the building after classes were dismissed. A stranger entered her classroom, where the following exchange took place. Young man, take off your clothes. Teacher, noticing that the young man was shaking, I'm sensing this is very scary for you. Young man, did you hear me? God damn it, take off your clothes. Teacher, I'm sensing you're really pissed off right now and you want me to do what you're telling me. Young man, you're damned right, and you're going to get hurt if you don't. Teacher, I'd like you to tell me if there's some other way of meeting your needs that wouldn't hurt me. Young man, I said take them off. Teacher, I can hear how much you want this. At the same time, I want you to know how scared and horrible I feel, and how grateful I'd be if you'd leave without hurting me. Young man, give me your purse. The teacher handed the stranger her purse, relieved not to be raped. She later described how, each time she empathized with the young man, she could sense him becoming less adamant in his intention to follow through with the rape. A Metropolitan Police officer attending a follow-up training in NBC once greeted me with this account. I'm sure glad you had us practicing empathy with angry people that last time. Just a few days after our session, I went to arrest someone in a public housing project. When I brought him out, my car was surrounded by about 60 people screaming things at me like, let him go. He didn't do anything. You police are a bunch of racist pigs. Although I was skeptical that empathy would help, I didn't have many other options. So I reflected back the feelings that were coming at me, I said things like, so you don't trust my reasons for arresting this man? You think it has to do with race? After several minutes of my continuing to reflect their feelings, the group became less hostile. In the end they opened a path so I could get to my car. Finally, I'd like to illustrate how a young woman used empathy to bypass violence during her night shift at a drug detoxification center in Toronto. The young woman recounted this story during the second NBC workshop she attended. At 11 o'clock one night, a few weeks after her first NBC training, a man who'd obviously been taking drugs walked in off the street and demanded a room. The young woman started to explain to him that all the rooms had been filled for the night. She was about to hand the man the address of another detox center when he hurled her to the ground. The next thing I knew, he was sitting across my chest holding a knife to my throat and shouting, You bitch, don't lie to me. You do too have a room. She then proceeded to apply her training by listening for his feelings and needs. You remember to do that under those conditions? I asked, impressed. What choice did I have? Desperation sometimes makes good communicators of us all. You know, Marshall, she added, that joke you told in the workshop really helped me. In fact, I think it saved my life. What joke? Remember when you said never to put your butt in the face of an angry person? I was all ready to start arguing with him, I was about to say, but I don't have a room. When I remembered your joke. It had really stayed with me because only the week before, I was arguing with my mother and she'd said to me, I could kill you when you answer but to everything I say. Imagine, if my own mother was angry enough to kill me for using that word, what would this man have done? If I'd said, but I don't have a room. When he was screaming at me, I have no doubt he would have slit my throat. Rather than put your butt in the face of an angry person, empathize. So instead, I took a deep breath and said, it sounds like you're really angry and you want to be given a room. He yelled back, I may be an addict, 
but by God, I deserve respect. I'm tired of nobody giving me respect. My parents don't give me respect. I'm gonna get respect. I just focused on his feelings and needs and said, are you fed up, not getting the respect that you want? How long did this go on? I asked. Oh, about another 35 minutes, she replied. That must have been terrifying. No, not after the first couple of interchanges, because then something else we'd learned here became apparent. When I concentrated on listening for his feelings and needs, I stopped seeing him as a monster. I could see, just as you'd said, how people who seem like monsters are simply human beings whose language and behavior sometimes keep us from seeing their humanness. The more I was able to focus my attention on his feelings and needs, the more I saw him as a person full of despair whose needs weren't being met. I became confident that if I held my attention there, I wouldn't be hurt. After he'd received the empathy he needed, he got off me, put the knife away, and I helped him find a room at another center. When we listen for feelings and needs, we no longer see people as monsters. Delighted that she'd learned to respond empathically in such an extreme situation, I asked curiously, what are you doing back here? It sounds like you've mastered NBC and should be out teaching others what you've learned. Now I need you to help me with a hard one, she said. I'm almost afraid to ask. What could be harder than that? Now I need you to help me with my mother. Despite all the insight I got into that but phenomenon, you know what happened? At supper the next evening when I told my mother what had happened, she said, you are going to cause your father and me to have a heart attack if you keep that job. You simply have to find different work. So guess what I said to her? But, mother, it's my life. It may be difficult to empathize with those who are closest to us. I couldn't have asked for a more compelling example of how difficult it can be to respond empathically to one's own family members. Empathy in hearing someone's no. Because of our tendency to read rejection into someone else's no and I don't want to, these are important messages for us to be able to empathize with. If we take them personally, we may feel hurt without understanding what's actually going on within the other person. When we shine the light of consciousness on the feelings and needs behind someone else's no, however, we become cognizant of what they are wanting that prevents them from responding as we would like. Empathizing with someone's no protects us from taking it personally. One time I asked a woman during a workshop break to join me and other participants for some ice cream nearby. No. She replied brusquely. The tone of her voice led me to interpret her answer as a rejection, until I reminded myself to tune into the feelings and needs she might be expressing through her no. I sense that you are angry, I said. Is that so? No, she replied, it's just that I don't want to be corrected every time I open my mouth. Now I sense that she was fearful rather than angry. I checked this out by asking, so you're feeling fearful and want to protect yourself from being in a situation where you might be judged for how you communicate? Yes, she affirmed, I can imagine sitting in the ice cream shop with you and having you notice everything I say. I then discovered that the way I'd been providing feedback in the workshop had been frightening to her. My empathy for her message had taken the sting out of her no for me, I heard her desire to avoid receiving similar feedback in public. Assuring her that I wouldn't evaluate her communication in public, I then conferred with her on ways to give feedback that would leave her feeling safe. And yes, she joined the group for ice cream. Empathy to revive a lifeless conversation we have all found ourselves in the midst of a lifeless conversation. Perhaps we're at a social event, 
hearing words without feeling any connection to the speaker. Or we're listening to someone my friend Kelly Bryson would call a Babylon Ian someone who elicits in their listeners the fear of interminable conversation. Vitality drains out of conversations when we lose connection with the feelings and needs generating the speaker's words, and with the requests associated with those needs. This effect is common when people talk without consciousness of what they are feeling, needing, or requesting. Instead of being engaged in an exchange of life energy with other human beings, we see ourselves becoming wastebaskets for their words. How and when do we interrupt a dead conversation to bring it back to life? I'd suggest the best time to interrupt is when we've heard one word more than we want to hear. The longer we wait, the harder it is to be civil when we do step in. Our intention in interrupting is not to claim the floor for ourselves, but to help the speaker connect to the life energy behind the words being spoken. We do this by tuning into possible feelings and needs. Thus, if an aunt is repeating the story about how 20 years ago her husband deserted her and her two small children, we might interrupt by saying, So, Auntie, it sounds like you are still feeling hurt, wishing you'd been treated more fairly. People are not aware that empathy is often what they are needing. Neither do they realize that they are more likely to receive that empathy by expressing the feelings and needs that are alive in them than by recounting tales of past injustice and hardship. To bring a conversation back to life, interrupt with empathy. Another way to bring a conversation to life is to openly express our desire to be more connected, and to request information that would help us establish that connection. Once, at a cocktail party, I was in the midst of an abundant flow of words that to me seemed lifeless. Excuse me, I broke in, addressing the group of nine other people I'd found myself with, I'm feeling impatient because I'd like to be more connected with you, but our conversation isn't creating the kind of connection I'm wanting. I'd like to know if the conversation we've been having is meeting your needs, and if so, what needs of yours are being met through it. All nine people stared at me as if I had thrown a rat in the punch bowl. Fortunately, I remembered to tune into the feelings and needs being expressed through their silence. Are you annoyed with my interrupting because you would have liked to continue the conversation? I asked. After another silence, one of the men replied, No, I'm not annoyed. I was thinking about what you were asking. And no, I wasn't enjoying the conversation, in fact, I was totally bored with it. What bores the listener bores the speaker too. At the time, I was surprised to hear his response because he had been the one doing most of the talking. Now I am no longer surprised, I have since discovered that conversations that are lifeless for the listener are equally so for the speaker. You may wonder how we can muster the courage to flatly interrupt someone in the middle of a sentence. I once conducted an informal survey, posing the following question, if you are using more words than somebody wants to hear, do you want that person to pretend to listen or to stop you? Of the scores of people I approached, all but one expressed a preference to be stopped. Their answers gave me courage by convincing me that it is more considerate to interrupt people than to pretend to listen. All of us want our words to enrich others, not to burden them. Speakers prefer that listeners interrupt rather than pretend to listen. Empathy for silence. One of the hardest messages for many of us to empathize with is silence. This is especially true when we've expressed ourselves vulnerably and need to know how others are reacting to our words. At such times, it's easy to project our worst fears onto the lack of response and forget to connect with the feelings and needs being expressed through the silence. One time when I was working with the staff of a business organization, I was talking about something deeply emotional and began to cry. When I looked up, 
I received a response from the organization's director that was not easy for me to receive, silence. He turned his face from me with what I interpreted to be an expression of disgust. Fortunately, I remembered to put my attention on what might be going on within him, and said, I'm sensing from your response to my crying that you're feeling disgusted, and you'd prefer to have someone more in control of his feelings consulting with your staff. Empathize with silence by listening for the feelings and needs behind it. If he had answered yes, I would have been able to accept that we had different values around expressing emotions, without somehow thinking that I was wrong for having expressed my emotions as I did. But instead of yes, the director replied, no, not at all. I was just thinking of how my wife wishes I could cry. He went on to reveal that his wife, who was divorcing him, had been complaining that living with him was like living with a rock. During my practice as a psychotherapist, I was contacted by the parents of a 20-year-old woman under psychiatric care. She had been undergoing medication, hospitalization, and shock treatments for several months, and had become mute three months before her parents contacted me. When they brought her to my office, she had to be assisted because, left to herself, she didn't move. In my office, she crouched in her chair, shaking, her eyes on the floor. Trying to connect empathically with the feelings and needs being expressed through her nonverbal message, I said, I'm sensing that you are frightened and would like to be sure that it's safe to talk. Is that accurate? She showed no reaction, so I expressed my own feeling by saying, I'm very concerned about you, and I'd like you to tell me if there's something I could say or do to make you feel safer. Still no response. For the next 40 minutes, I continued to either reflect her feelings and needs or express my own. There was no visible response, nor even the slightest recognition that I was trying to communicate with her. Finally I expressed that I was tired, and that I wanted her to return the following day. The next few days were like the first. I continued focusing my attention on her feelings and needs, sometimes verbally reflecting what I understood and sometimes doing so silently. From time to time I would express what was going on in myself. She sat shaking in her chair, saying nothing. On the fourth day, when she still didn't respond, I reached over and held her hand. Not knowing whether my words were communicating my concern, I hoped the physical contact might do so more effectively. At first contact, her muscles tensed and she shrank further back into her chair. I was about to release her hand when I sensed a slight yielding, so I kept my hold. After a few moments I noticed a progressive relaxation on her part. I held her hand for several minutes while I talked to her as I had the first few days. Still she said nothing. When she arrived the next day, she appeared even more tense than before, but there was one difference, she extended a clenched fist toward me while turning her face away from me. I was at first confused by the gesture, but then sensed she had something in her hand she wanted me to have. Taking her fist in my hand, I pried open her fingers. In her palm was a crumpled note with the following message, please help me say what's inside. I was elated to receive this sign of her desire to communicate. After another hour of encouragement, she finally expressed a first sentence, slowly and fearfully. When I reflected back what I had heard her saying, she appeared relieved and then continued, slowly and fearfully, to talk. A year later, she sent me a copy of the following entries from her journal. I came out of the hospital, away from shock treatments and strong medicine. That was about April. The three months before that are completely blank in my mind, as well as the three and a half years before April. They say that, after getting out of the hospital, I went through a time at home of not eating, not talking, and wanting to stay in bed all the time. 
Then I was referred to Dr. Rosenberg for counseling. I don't remember much of those next two or three months other than being in Dr. Rosenberg's office and talking with him. I'd begun waking up since that first session with him. I'd begun sharing with him things that bothered me, things that I would never have dreamed of telling anyone about. And I remember how much that meant to me. It was so hard to talk. But Dr. Rosenberg cared about me and showed it, and I wanted to talk with him. I was always glad afterwards that I had let something out. I remember counting the days, even the hours, until my next appointment with him. I've also learned that facing reality is not all bad. I am realizing more and more of the things that I need to stand up to, things that I need to get out and do on my own. This is scary. And it's very hard. And it's so discouraging that when I'm trying really a lot, I can still fail so terribly. But the good part of reality is that I've been seeing that it includes wonderful things, too. I've learned in the past year about how wonderful it can be to share myself with other people. I think it was mostly just one part that I learned, about the thrill of my talking to other people and having them actually listen, even really understand at times. I continue to be amazed by the healing power of empathy. Time and again I have witnessed people transcend the paralyzing effects of psychological pain when they have sufficient contact with someone who can hear them empathically. As listeners, we don't need insights into psychological dynamics or training in psychotherapy. What is essential is our ability to be present to what's really going on within, to the unique feelings and needs a person is experiencing in that very moment. Empathy lies in our ability to be present. Summary Our ability to offer empathy can allow us to stay vulnerable, diffuse potential violence, hear the word no without taking it as a rejection, revive a lifeless conversation, and even hear the feelings and needs expressed through silence. Time and again, people transcend the paralyzing effects of psychological pain when they have sufficient contact with someone who can hear them empathically. 9. Connecting compassionately with ourselves. Let us become the change we seek in the world. Mahatma Gandhi. We have seen how NBC contributes to relationships with friends and family, at work and in the political arena. Its most crucial application, however, may be in the way we treat ourselves. When we are internally violent toward ourselves, it is difficult to be genuinely compassionate toward others. NBC's most important use may be in developing self-compassion. Remembering the specialness of what we are. In the play A Thousand Clowns by Herb Gardner, the protagonist refuses to release his 12-year-old nephew to child welfare authorities, declaring, I want him to get to know exactly the special thing he is or else he won't notice it when it starts to go. I want him to stay awake, I want to be sure he sees all the wild possibilities. I want him to know it's worth all the trouble just to give the world a little goosing when you get the chance. And I want him to know the subtle, sneaky, important reason why he was born a human being and not a chair. I am gravely concerned that many of us have lost awareness of the special thing we are, we have forgotten the subtle, sneaky, important reason the uncle so passionately wanted his nephew to know. When critical self-concepts prevent us from seeing the beauty in ourselves, we lose connection with the divine energy that is our source. Conditioned to view ourselves as objects objects full of shortcomings, is it any wonder that many of us end up relating violently to ourselves? An important area where this violence can be replaced with compassion is in our moment-to-moment -moment evaluation of ourselves. Since we want whatever we do to lead to the enrichment of life, it is critical to know how to evaluate events and conditions in ways that help us learn and make ongoing choices that serve us. Unfortunately, 
the way we've been trained to evaluate ourselves often promotes more self-hatred than learning. We use NBC to evaluate ourselves in ways that engender growth rather than self-hatred. Evaluating ourselves when we've been less than perfect. In a routine workshop activity, I ask participants to recall a recent occasion when they did something they wish they hadn't. We then look at how they spoke to themselves immediately after having made what is referred in common language as a mistake or error. Typical statements were, that was dumb. How could you do such a stupid thing? What's wrong with you? You're always messing up. That's selfish. These speakers had been taught to judge themselves in ways that imply that what they did was wrong or bad, their self-admonishment implicitly assumes that they deserve to suffer for what they've done. It is tragic that so many of us get enmeshed in self-hatred rather than benefit from our mistakes, which show us our limitations and guide us towards growth. Even when we sometimes do learn a lesson from mistakes for which we judge ourselves harshly, I worry about the nature of the energy behind that kind of change and learning. I'd like change to be stimulated by a clear desire to enrich life for ourselves or for others rather than by destructive energies such as shame or guilt. If the way we evaluate ourselves leads us to feel shame, and we consequently change our behavior, we are allowing our growing and learning to be guided by self-hatred. Shame is a form of self-hatred, and actions taken in reaction to shame are not free and joyful acts. Even if our intention is to behave with more kindness and sensitivity, if people sense shame or guilt behind our actions, they are less likely to appreciate what we do than if we are motivated purely by the human desire to contribute to life. In our language there is a word with enormous power to create shame and guilt. This violent word, which we commonly use to evaluate ourselves, is so deeply ingrained in our consciousness that many of us would have trouble imagining how to live without it. It is the word should, as in I should have known better or I shouldn't have done that. Most of the time when we use this word with ourselves, we resist learning, because should implies that there is no choice. Human beings, when hearing any kind of demand, tend to resist because it threatens our autonomy, our strong need for choice. We have this reaction to tyranny even when it's internal tyranny in the form of a should. Avoid shoulding yourself. A similar expression of internal demand occurs in the following self-evaluation, what I'm doing is just terrible. I really must do something about it. Think for a moment of all the people you've heard say, I really should give up smoking, or, I really have to do something about exercising more. They keep saying what they must do and they keep resisting doing it, because human beings were not meant to be slaves. We were not meant to succumb to the dictates of should and have to, whether they come from outside or inside of ourselves. And if we do yield and submit to these demands, our actions arise from an energy that is devoid of life-giving joy. Translating Self-Judgments and Inner Demands When we communicate with ourselves on a regular basis through inner judgment, blame, and demand, it's not surprising that our self-concept gives into feeling more like a chair than a human being. A basic premise of NBC is that whenever we imply that someone is wrong or bad, what we are really saying is that he or she is not acting in harmony with our needs. If the person we are judging happens to be ourselves, what we are saying is, I myself am not behaving in harmony with my own needs. I am convinced that if we learn to evaluate ourselves in terms of whether and how well our needs are being fulfilled, we are much more likely to learn from the evaluation. Our challenge then, when we are doing something that is not enriching life, is to evaluate ourselves moment by moment in a way that inspires change both, one, in the direction of where we would like to go, and, two, out of respect and compassion for ourselves, rather than out of self-hatred, guilt or shame. Self-judgments, 
like all judgments, are tragic expressions of unmet needs. NBC Morning After a lifetime of schooling and socialization, it is probably too late for most of us to train our minds to think purely in terms of what we need and value from moment to moment. However, just as we have learned to translate judgments when conversing with others, we can train ourselves to recognize judgmental self-talk and to immediately focus our attention on the underlying needs. For example, if we find ourselves reacting reproachfully to something we did, look, you just messed up again, we can quickly stop and ask ourselves, what unmet need of mine is being expressed through this moralistic judgment? When we do connect to the need, and there may be several layers of needs, we will notice a remarkable shift in our bodies. Instead of the shame, guilt, or depression we likely feel when criticizing ourselves for having messed up again, we will experience any number of other feelings. Whether it's sadness, frustration, disappointment, fear, grief, or some other feeling, we have been endowed by nature with these feelings for a purpose, they mobilize us to pursue and fulfill what we need or value. The impact of these feelings on our spirit and bodies is substantially different from the disconnection that is brought on by guilt, shame, and depression. Mourning in NBC is the process of fully connecting with the unmet needs and the feelings that are generated when we have been less than perfect. It is an experience of regret, but regret that helps us learn from what we have done without blaming or hating ourselves. We see how our behavior ran counter to our own needs and values, and we open ourselves to feelings that arise out of that awareness. When our consciousness is focused on what we need, we are naturally stimulated toward creative possibilities for how to get that need met. In contrast, the moralistic judgments we use when blaming ourselves tend to obscure such possibilities and to perpetuate a state of self-punishment. NBC Morning, Connecting with the Feelings and Unmet Needs Stimulated by Past Actions We Now Regret Self-Forgiveness We follow up on the process of mourning with self-forgiveness. Turning our attention to the part of the self which chose to act in the way that led to the present situation, we ask ourselves, when I behaved in the way which I now regret, what need of mine was I trying to meet? I believe that human beings are always acting in the service of needs and values. This is true whether the action does or does not meet the need, or whether it's one we end up celebrating or regretting. When we listen empathically to ourselves, we will be able to hear the underlying need. Self-forgiveness occurs the moment this empathic connection is made. Then we are able to recognize how our choice was an attempt to serve life, even as the mourning process teaches us how it fell short of fulfilling our needs. An important aspect of self-compassion is to be able to empathically hold both parts of ourselves, the self that regrets a past action and the self that took the action in the first place. The process of mourning and self-forgiveness frees us in the direction of learning and growing. In connecting moment by moment to our needs, we increase our creative capacity to act in harmony with them. NBC Self-Forgiveness connecting with the need we were trying to meet when we took the action that we now regret. The Lesson of the Polka-Dotted Suit I would like to illustrate the process of mourning and self-forgiveness by recalling a personal event. The day before an important workshop, I had bought a light gray summer suit to wear. At the end of the well-attended workshop, I was swarmed by participants asking for my signature, address, and other information. With time closing in on another appointment, I hastened to attend to the requests of the participants, signing and scribbling on the many bits of paper thrust in front of me. As I rushed out the door, I stuck my pen, uncapped, in the pocket of my new suit. Once outside, I discovered to my horror that instead of the nice light gray suit, I now had a polka-dotted suit. 
For 20 minutes I was brutal with myself, how could you be so careless? What a stupid thing to do. I had just ruined a brand new suit, if ever I needed compassion and understanding, this was the time, yet there I was responding to myself in a way that left me feeling worse than ever. Fortunately, after only 20 minutes, I noticed what I was doing. I stopped, looked for the need of mine that was unmet by having left the pen uncapped, and asked myself, what need lies behind my judging myself as careless and stupid? Immediately I saw that it was to take better care of myself, to have given more attention to my own needs while I was rushing to address everyone else's needs. As soon as I touched that part of myself and connected to the deep longing to be more aware and caring of my own needs, my feelings shifted. There was a release of tension in my body as the anger, shame, and guilt I was harboring toward myself dissipated. I fully mourned the ruined suit and uncapped pen as I opened to feelings of sadness arising along with the yearning to take better care of myself. Next I shifted my attention to the need I was meeting when I slipped the uncapped pen into my pocket. I recognized how much I valued care and consideration for other people's needs. Of course, in taking such good care of other people's needs, I had not taken the time to do the same for myself. But instead of blame, I felt a wave of compassion for myself as I realized that even my rushing and putting the pen away unthinkingly had come out of serving my own need to respond to others in a caring way. We are compassionate with ourselves when we are able to embrace all parts of ourselves and recognize the needs and values expressed by each part. In that compassionate place, I am able to hold both needs, in one hand, to respond in a caring way to others' needs, and in the other, to be aware of and take better care of my own needs. On becoming conscious of both needs, I can imagine ways of behaving differently in similar situations and arriving at solutions more resourcefully than if I lose that consciousness in a sea of self-judgment. Don't do anything that isn't play. In addition to the process of mourning and self-forgiveness, another aspect of self-compassion I emphasize is in the energy that's behind whatever action we take. When I advise, don't do anything that isn't play. Some take me to be radical, even insane. I earnestly believe, however, that an important form of self-compassion is to make choices motivated purely by our desire to contribute to life rather than out of fear, guilt, shame, duty, or obligation. When we are conscious of the life-enriching purpose behind an action we take, when the sole energy that motivates us is simply to make life wonderful for others and ourselves, then even hard work has an element of play in it. Correspondingly, an otherwise joyful activity performed out of obligation, duty, fear, guilt, or shame will lose its joy and eventually engender resistance. We want to take action out of the desire to contribute to life rather than out of fear, guilt, shame, or obligation. In Chapter 2, we considered replacing language that implies lack of choice with language that acknowledges choice. Many years ago I began to engage in an activity which significantly enlarged the pool of joy and happiness available to my life, while diminishing depression, guilt, and shame. I offer it here as a possible way to deepen our compassion for ourselves, to help us live our lives out of joyous play by staying grounded in a clear awareness of the life-enriching need behind everything we do. Translating have to to choose to. Step 1. What do you do in your life that you don't experience as playful? List on a piece of paper all those things that you tell yourself you have to do. List any activity you dread but do anyway because you perceive yourself to have no choice. When I first reviewed my own list, just seeing how long it was gave me insight as to why so much of my time was spent not enjoying life. I noticed how many ordinary, 
daily things I was doing by tricking myself into believing that I had to do them. The first item on my list was write clinical reports. I hated writing these reports, yet I was spending at least an hour of agony over them every day. My second item was drive the children's carpool to school. Step 2. After completing your list, clearly acknowledge to yourself that you are doing these things because you choose to do them, not because you have to. Insert the words I choose to, in front of each item you listed. I recall my own resistance to this step. Writing clinical reports, I insisted to myself, is not something I choose to do. I have to do it. I'm a clinical psychologist. I have to write these reports. Step 3. After having acknowledged that you choose to do a particular activity, get in touch with the intention behind your choice by completing the statement, I choose to, because I want. At first I fumbled to identify what I wanted from writing clinical reports. I had already determined, several months earlier, that the reports did not serve my clients enough to justify the time they were taking, so why was I continuing to invest so much energy in their preparation? Finally I realized that I was choosing to write the report solely because I wanted the income they provided. As soon as I recognized this, I never wrote another clinical report. I can't tell you how joyful I feel just thinking of how many clinical reports I haven't written since that moment 35 years ago. When I realized that money was my primary motivation, I immediately saw that I could find other ways to take care of myself financially, and that in fact, I'd rather scavenge in garbage cans for food than write another clinical report. The next item on my list of unjoyful tasks was driving the children to school. When I examined the reason behind that chore, however, I felt appreciation for the benefits my children received from attending their school. They could easily walk to the neighborhood school, but their own school was far more in harmony with my educational values. I continued to drive, but with a different energy, instead of oh, darn, I have to drive the carpool today, I was conscious of my purpose, which was for my children to have a quality of education that was very dear to me. Of course I sometimes needed to remind myself two or three times during the drive to refocus my mind on what purpose my action was serving. With every choice you make, be conscious of what need it serves. Cultivating awareness of the energy behind our actions. As you explore the statement, I choose to, because I want, you may discover, as I did with the children's carpool, the important values behind the choices you've made. I am convinced that after we gain clarity regarding the need being served by our actions, we can experience those actions as play even when they involve hard work, challenge, or frustration. For some items on your list, however, you might uncover one or several of the following motivations. 1. For money. Money is a major form of extrinsic reward in our society. Choices prompted by a desire for reward are costly, they deprive us of the joy in life that comes with actions grounded in the clear intention to contribute to a human need. Money is not a need as we define it in NBC, it is one of countless strategies that may be selected to address a need. 2. For approval. Like money, approval from others is a form of extrinsic reward. Our culture has educated us to hunger for reward. We attended schools that used extrinsic means to motivate us to study. We grew up in homes where we were rewarded for being good little boys and girls, and were punished when our caretakers judged us to be otherwise. Thus, as adults, we easily trick ourselves into believing that life consists of doing things for reward, we are addicted to getting a smile, a pat on the back, and people's verbal judgments that we are a good person, good parent, good citizen, good worker, good friend, 
and so forth. We do things to get people to like us and avoid things that may lead people to dislike or punish us. I find it tragic that we work so hard to buy love and assume that we must deny ourselves and do for others in order to be liked. In fact, when we do things solely in the spirit of enhancing life, we will find others appreciating us. Their appreciation, however, is only a feedback mechanism confirming that our efforts had the intended effect. The recognition that we have chosen to use our power to serve life and have done so successfully brings us the genuine joy of celebrating ourselves in a way that approval from others can never offer. 3. To escape punishment. Some of us pay income tax primarily to avoid punishment. As a consequence, we are likely to approach that yearly ritual with a degree of resentment. I recall, however, from my childhood how differently my father and grandfather felt about paying taxes. They had immigrated to the United States from Russia and were desirous of supporting a government they believed was protecting people in a way that the Tsar had not. Imagining the many people whose welfare was being served by their tax money, they felt earnest pleasure as they sent their checks to the U.S. government. 4. To avoid shame. There may be some tasks we choose to do just to avoid shame. We know that if we don't do them, we'll end up suffering severe self-judgment, hearing our own voice telling us there is something wrong or stupid about us. If we do something stimulated solely by the urge to avoid shame, we will generally end up detesting it. 5. To avoid guilt. In other instances, we may think, if I don't do this, people will be disappointed in me. We are afraid we'll end up feeling guilty for failing to fulfill other people's expectations of us. There is a world of difference between doing something for others in order to avoid guilt and doing it out of a clear awareness of our own need to contribute to the happiness of other human beings. The first is a world filled with misery, the second is a world filled with play. Be conscious of actions motivated by the desire for money or approval, and by fear, shame, or guilt. Know the price you pay for them. 6. To satisfy a sense of duty. When we use language which denies choice, for example, words such as should, have to, ought, must, can't, supposed to, etc., our behaviors arise out of a vague sense of guilt, duty, or obligation. I consider this to be the most socially dangerous and personally unfortunate of all the ways we act when we're cut off from our needs. In Chapter 2 we saw how the concept of Amsprey allowed Adolf Eichmann and his colleagues to send tens of thousands of people to their deaths without feeling emotionally affected or personally responsible. When we speak a language that denies choice, we forfeit the life in ourselves for a robot-like mentality that disconnects us from our own core. The most dangerous of all behaviors may consist of doing things because we're supposed to. After examining the list of items you have generated, you may decide to stop doing certain things in the same spirit that I chose to forego writing clinical reports. As radical as it may seem, it is possible to do things only out of play. I believe that to the degree that we engage moment by moment in the playfulness of enriching life, motivated solely by the desire for enriching life, to that degree are we being compassionate with ourselves. Summary. The most crucial application of NBC may be in the way we treat ourselves. When we make mistakes, instead of getting caught up in moralistic self-judgments, we can use the process of NBC mourning and self-forgiveness to show us where we can grow. By assessing our behaviors in terms of our own unmet needs, the impetus for change comes not out of shame, guilt, anger, or depression, but out of the genuine desire to contribute to our own and others' well-being. 
We also cultivate self-compassion by consciously choosing in daily life to act only in service to our own needs and values rather than out of duty, for extrinsic rewards, or to avoid guilt, shame, and punishment. If we review the joyless acts to which we currently subject ourselves and make the translation from have to to choose to, we will discover more play and integrity in our lives.